Today's reading is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six six stone water jars, the kinds used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken about was of, it, was of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, thank you. Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be here with you. My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. And honestly, it's the biggest privilege of my life to stand here and open God's word with you. Hey, one of the most common depictions that I hear about the the picture of Christianity and and the person of Jesus is that Jesus comes to lay burdens and regulations and rules upon us. That he's a God who comes and demands that we worship him um, and that we need to kind of just get in our box. We need to stop doing the bad stuff and we need to make sure that we start doing the good stuff. We need to make sure that we don't live a life like the rest of the world around us, but we need to start living a life like he lived. And if we're not living a life like that, we're a bad Christian, we're not doing a good job. And so that just becomes this unappealing picture of Christianity that people have. And so people wander away from it and want nothing to do with it. As a youth pastor, I actually find that as I meet um, young people who are wrestling with the questions of faith and life, they're not so much phased by the proofs for the existence of God. They believe there's a God. They're just not sure if they want to follow him. They're just not sure if they want to submit these parts of their lives to someone who's going to tell them what they need to do. 
Jesus is pictured as this almost teacher in the sky with a ruler who's telling people what to do, and they want nothing to do with that. Um, that's really, actually, whether you've heard that presented to you before, the Western secular picture of religion. Religion is an evil that restricts people. Jesus is not good for you. And whether you believe that or not, or whether you've even heard someone articulate that before or not, it's, it's part of the climate and the culture that we live in, and it's almost like it's airborne. It starts to seep into our skin, and it starts to shape the way that we start to look at Jesus for ourselves. It starts to even change the way that we feel about our faith and change the way that we feel about Jesus. We would never admit those words, but we start to think of God restricting us, trying to put us in a box when in fact we'd love to live another way. And you know what? It absolutely breaks my heart because nothing could be further from the truth. The Jesus of the scriptures is not a Jesus who wants to restrict and regulate. He's a Jesus who wants to set us free. The common secular narrative of our culture is that if you can just be you, your true self, you can go anywhere, you can do anything, you can live any life that you wanna live. When you finally really embrace that, that person that you were meant to be, you will finally encounter flourishing. You'll finally have the meaning and the satisfaction that you so crave, and we're all on a journey to find it. And the tragic irony is that that's completely false. It's an absolute lie. We've had centuries of the secular narrative and our society is yet to produce those sorts of people, the meaning-filled, satisfied people who are living flourishing lives. We don't see it. We have more wealth than we've ever had before. People are living a life of comfort that is unprecedented in history and yet mental health is on the rise. Depression, anxiety are abounding. People have more in their lives than ever before and yet seem to still be so unhappy. Why? Well, because the utopia that this, this world has been promising us is not found in the place that it says it's found. And that's why it breaks my heart because Jesus is put into the corner and said, Jesus has nothing to offer you when Jesus is truly the only place we can find what we truly crave. Jesus is the one who truly gives everything that we long for as humans. He is the source of truth flourishing. Later in John, in chapter 10, Verse 10, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Here's what Jesus says he's come to do. He says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I wanna change yours and my picture and feelings about Jesus. And John 2 is the place to do it. There's two words that shine out for me from John 2 that just, just, just shine out the kind of Jesus that we wanna follow. That is the word abundance and the word presence the word abundance and the word presence. If you look in this first story of Jesus turning water into wine, I think this is just one of the best miracles ever. Some people say Jesus is boring. He's at a party having a good time with his friends and family drinking wine and when they run out, who's the one who solves the problem? It's your boy Jesus. He's got you covered. Jesus is here um, beginning his public ministry um, amongst people. His mum comes to him while they're at this wedding. He says, Jesus. She says, Jesus, there's, there's no more wine. Um, and, and I think rightly so, Jesus says, what's that got to do with me? Woman, why are you telling me this? He's not saying that in a derogatory way. He's just saying, what, what has this got to do with me? Some key words that he says right after that. My hour has not yet come. You're gonna see that again and again through the language of, God, of the Gospel of John, that Jesus has come for a purpose. 
He's come to lay his life down on that cross and three days later rise to life again. That is the hour and he's ready to do it. He's ready to declare himself as the son of God and pour himself out for you and for me. But at this point, he says, my hour has not yet come. And yet Jesus's mom, who I think has learned to rely on him, we don't hear much about Joseph after the birth narrative. Some people suggest that maybe he passed away. Jesus being the firstborn, she's learned to rely on him. Jesus also being the infinite God of the universe, pretty good person to rely upon. She says to him, do whatever he tells you to the servants. He said he's not gonna do anything, but she's got this expectation that Jesus will still come through. Now, before we go any further, I just wanna stop and just make a point about the Gospel of John. I don't know if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, Paul got up here and he preached and he said that John is his least favorite Gospel because he's a mathematician, he loves logic and you know, just clear boundaries. And I come to the Gospel of John, my absolute favorite Gospel. I love it, it's just a beautiful mess. John just tells a story and throughout this story, he just weaves into the narrative these essential details, these little moments that if you just keep reading quickly, you'll miss. But if you pause and reflect on them, they're actually the rich, beautiful moments that you discover who Jesus truly is. And that's what I wanna point out to you now, just a couple of the rich details that John has put here so that you can see the kind of Jesus that is for us. And the first one is this statement of his mum saying that they've run out of wine. In a wedding that you and I have been to before, if they ran out of wine, if you were drinking wine, you'd probably be a little bit upset because you like wine and you wanna keep drinking. But other than that, you'd move on and you might grab a glass of water. Um, I'm sure there's something else that you could drink. Very different in this context. A wedding celebration was an enormous affair for the first century Jewish family. Everyone and anyone who is connected to this family is invited and it is the family's obligation to put on a celebration that everyone will enjoy, to celebrate this beautiful occasion. So for a family to run out of wine, it's not just a tragic moment where they don't have something to drink anymore, this is a moment of deep shame. This is a moment where this family is in danger of offending every single person they've invited into their, their home or their party. And that's important because Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He's not ready to put himself out there. But what does he do? He steps in and he solves the problem. Why? Because Jesus is in the business of covering shame. Jesus is in the business of taking people who are in danger of their own failures and their own brokenness and he steps into that problem and he solves it. Notice that it's actually the bridegroom's fault. He didn't prepare enough wine. Jesus could have said, hey, that's your bad. You really should have thought about this a little bit more. And if you didn't have enough money, well, maybe don't throw a big party next time. No, instead he just steps in and he covers this, this man's shame. And I want you to see that that's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus wants to step into your life in, in every little messy moment. And he wants to draw you near and overcome every shortcoming, every piece of brokenness, because he loves you deeply. That is essential to the work of Jesus. There's a little bit more even as he goes about this miracle, as he goes about covering this man's shame. You notice that the way he turns this water into wine. It's, it's very cool. He grabs these six stone water jars in verse six. It says, um, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
Um, for you and I, again, we're thinking, cool, just nearby there's some jars. They happen to be pretty big and they're full of water. Great. And he just uses what's available to him. But John doesn't give you details that aren't important. These jars are there for a very specific purpose. They're there for ceremonial cleansing. For the Old Testament Jew, it was fundamental and essential that you maintained your cleanliness because you cannot approach God and you cannot practice your religion without it. I've been reading through Leviticus in my Bible in a year program at the moment, and it is you know, a bit of a slog at times. There's some great stuff in there as well, but there are just countless rules and regulations about what it means to stay clean and not be unclean and do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. It was absolutely essential to the Jew. And these jars are there because this is a Jewish wedding. It is not a mistake that Jesus turns up to these ceremonial jars that they needed that water. Jesus steps into it and uses that water to turn it into something new. Because Jesus has not come to lay regulations upon us, he's come to put them aside. He's not come to put a yoke and a burden upon your shoulders to make you do more and more and more to please God, more and more and more to come near. No, he's come to put that aside. He doesn't just get the the jar and break it. That would be a very monumental illustration. It'd actually be quite powerful. Look, Jesus is doing away with the old. No, instead he takes what was old and he transforms what's within. He takes the water that was used for regulations and used for all these sorts of things and he turns it into wine. Your Jesus wants to replace regulation with celebration. Your Jesus wants to take away your obligation and replace it with just a beautiful, rich life of joy. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus who loves you. And you know what? It's pretty good wine. You know, there's this moment where the the servants take a bit of the wine and they take it over to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet has no idea where this wine's come from. He takes a sip of it and he goes, oh, this is good. He says, normally, here's what happens. People put out their good wine and then people get a little bit intoxicated. They don't really know what they're drinking anymore. And then they put out the bad stuff and that's the end of the party. And presumably, that's exactly what the bridegroom did. And so when this master of the banquet tastes Jesus' wine, what he's actually saying is Jesus' wine is better than the best stuff you could come up with, bridegroom. Now, we've already learned that he's not a very good bridegroom. He's run out of wine. But presumably, even the best of the best wine has nothing to measure up to the wine of Jesus. Jesus comes to take the regulations, replace it with wine, but delicious wine, beautiful wine, the wine that you want to go to a party with. The wine that that can just satisfy that that moment when you were just ready to let your hair down and have a good time. Jesus wants to bring you full abundance. And notice again the details. It's not just a little bit, it's a lot. I don't know if you've ever read a children's Bible. When I was growing up, I was reading a children's Bible. This is actually my favorite miracle of Jesus's because in my children's Bible, on one page, there was Jesus holding this like little wine glass, like a champagne flute, and it had water in it. And then on the next one, it's the same shot, but on the other side with, with this wine suddenly there. And it's like, wow, Jesus is kind of like a magician. He had like a cloth and he was woo, or maybe he like spun around and wine, you know? It's like I had this picture of like Jesus is doing party tricks at the wedding. That's really, really cool. But that's not what happens here. And it's actually way better than it could have been if it was a magician because there's six jars here. It says they are each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, that didn't mean much to me. So if you're you know, numerically challenged like me, I did the math for you. Each jar holds 75 to 115 liters of water. That means Jesus just turned 450 to 690 liters of water into wine. He's not interested in giving you a small drink of wine so you can be hungry for more. 
He wants to just lavish you with abundant blessing. He wants to just completely overwhelm you with the goodness of himself. I just want you to remember, it's not about the wine. It's about Jesus. And this is the Jesus that we meet in the scriptures. Look at me at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You're gonna see that sentence a few different times. One of the signs that revealed his glory. This isn't just one of many little miracles, cool tricks that Jesus did. This is one of the signposts that Jesus plants in the ground so that we, the reader, can see what kind of God he is. Some people say because this is the first sign, it's the primary sign. What's the most important thing that you need to know about King Jesus? He wants to give you abundance. So I'm gonna ask you, does your picture of Jesus need an adjustment? Does the way that you feel about your faith need to change? Does your pattern of religion need to shift to line up with the Jesus of abundance? Because he has completely already lavished you with outrageous blessing. We're not just talking about, hey, when you die, it's a nice pie in the sky. We're talking about abundant blessing right now. I just wanna go through a couple of the things that Jesus has lavished upon you right now if you know him. Romans 5 verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You right now sitting in a hard seat or a hard pew have peace with God. Now that's already a big enough statement. The infinite creator God who made you, who you've deserted, rebelled against, offers you peace. But that peace extends into all of your life. As you walk through the mess that is this existence, as you encounter hardship and suffering and difficulty, there's one thing that remains constant and it's the peace of God. He holds on to you. He is with you, giving you everything that you need. You know that no matter what happens to you out here, within, you are right with him and that he will hold on to you to the end. Romans 8, verses one to two. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You have been completely and utterly forgiven. Every single thing that you've ever done, are doing right now or will do has been completely washed clean. Your sin was scarlet, but it has been washed white as snow. There is not a moment in your life that you need to fear the judgment of God because he has completely and utterly forgiven you right now. And more than that, he has set you free. Every single person outside is just running after whatever it is that will build themselves a life of meaning or satisfaction. It looks different for everyone. So everyone looks like they've got their own beautiful answer to the, the, the answer that is life. But it's all a chasing after the wind. It's all a slavery to sin. But Jesus says, when you come to me, I will completely forgive you. I'll give you the peace that you need with God. And in that context, you will be set free. You have nothing to prove anymore. You don't need to achieve anymore. You don't need to make it. I've already done it all. I am here with you and I am for you. Galatians 3.26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You have been adopted into the family of God. The eternal heavenly father that made all things is your eternal heavenly father. And he loves you right now with an unconditional 
eternal love. It says in Romans 8 that God works all things for the good of those who love him. In other words, God is completely and utterly for you. All these things are true right now. I could go on and on and on and on and on. The scriptures are just full of the blessings of what it means to be in Christ and you have it right now. Don't let that voice of our culture tell you that Jesus is here to lay a yoke upon you of heaviness because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He comes to bring rest and abundance to you. I just, I wanna challenge you. If you could walk away from here today, go home at some point, open up your Bible and read through Ephesians chapter one and just, just feast on the spiritual smorgasbord of everything that you have in Jesus. Seriously, trust me, it won't let you down. It will bless you so richly. You have so much in Jesus. You just have to open your eyes to it. That's the first word, the abundance of Jesus. The second word, and this will be a little bit quicker, is the presence of God, the presence of God. So in that first section, the ceremonial jars for cleansing in the Old Testament were used to show the new way of abundance in Jesus. But Jesus goes so much further. He walks into the temple courts, the place that he describes in verse 16 as his father's house. And with the authority of the father's son, he just goes to absolute town. He unleashes his righteous anger upon people who've made a mockery of the temple. And out of all the stuff that Jesus does, I think this is the one that I wish I could have seen. I wish I could have just watched the Jesus that we so often picture as meek and mild baby in a manger, or you know, even the suffering guy on the cross. I would have just loved to see Jesus just get so angry at righteously at those who have made a mockery of the temple. He just finds some cords, and he's a handy man, he was a carpenter, and he just turns these cords into a whip. I have no idea how you do that, but he managed to do it. He turns these cords into a whip, he starts flipping tables. I don't know if you've seen someone flip a table recently, but it's quite dramatic. He goes over to the money changers and he starts scattering all of their coins. If you haven't seen that recently, imagine you're at Woolworths waiting patiently in the line and someone jumps over the counter, grabs the cash register and just chucks it everywhere because that's what Jesus did. He gets his homemade whip and he starts whipping so that all of these animals just like parade out of the room so that suddenly the place is empty because Jesus is furious that they have made a mockery of the temple, of his father's house. If this is the one chance that we see Jesus just absolutely furious, why is it so significant? Like, you, I, I agree, the temple was probably pretty important, but why is he so mad? Well, I don't think you and I get it. Because the temple, if the ceremonial jars were important to make sure that you were clean, the temple was everything. The temple was the place that you came and you met God himself. It was the place that God promised his presence. There were strict regulations and laws about how you would approach God in the temple because God is immeasurably holy and we are significantly sinful. Again, I'll mention a verse from Leviticus that I read recently in my Bible. Leviticus 10 verses 1 to 2. This is confronting. Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. Get this. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. The presence of God was not only important to the Jewish people, it was absolutely essentially guarded. 
because no one can presume to come into the presence of the God who in Hebrews 12 is described as the consuming fire without first doing some business with God. And I think you and I don't get it because we just take for granted how scandalous the grace of Jesus is. If you've known Jesus even for a minute, you've already started to take for granted what he's done. An Old Testament Jew would be deeply offended by the way that we approach and talk to God. I don't think you understand that. They would, they would be deeply offended. That's why the early Christians were absolutely persecuted by the Jewish synagogues because they would be absolutely awestruck and horrified at the way that we talk to God because Jesus promises an intimate and immediate and glorious presence of God in your life. But it begins here, in this, this moment in the temple. Because the Jews, they're a little bit annoyed. And I think probably fair enough. If you threw my cash register around and flipped my table, I'd probably be annoyed. But they come to Jesus and they say, in verse 18, what sign, notice the word sign, can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? I love that. They're coming up to the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who is God. And they're saying, hey, where's your authority to be doing this? He's like, well, how about I'm holding you together right now? How about like I made you and right now you exist for me? But he could, he could just slam them, right? He could slam them with his divine authority, but he doesn't. He answers just in this really cryptic, but actually quite beautiful way. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Confusing, especially because they're standing in a temple, right, Jesus, that you could make this a bit clearer. No, very intentional. Jesus is saying the temple is the place of the presence of God. You think it's this building, no way, it's right here. I am the presence of God among you and you're gonna destroy me. I'm gonna let you do it. Three days later, I'm gonna to rise to new life because I will be the place where you will come and you will meet the presence of God. And it's not gonna be like the old way. It's gonna be new. You're gonna come with all of your burdens and your baggage and I'm gonna welcome you with open arms. I'm gonna draw you in and I'm gonna love you so significantly that you're not gonna know what to do with it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The Jews don't get it. This is another moment where they just get another reason to try and kill him. What they're offering him is absolutely outrageous. To come and know that you can see and be with God at any given time. And it just goes even further as you read more of the New Testament. If Jesus is the presence of God, what is it that the church is described as? Which described as the body of Christ. Jesus is the head and we become one with him. So not, not, not only do we need to go to Jesus to find the presence of God, it's actually the fact that God's presence dwells here right now with us. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Let me put it really clearly. Right now, as you sit on this pew on a normal Sunday, God is here amongst us, with us, for us. And more than that, as you leave this building and you go back to your home by yourself, God is with you, dwelling amongst you by his Holy Spirit because you are part of the body of Christ. God has taken you and made you one with him. The infinite God with the sinful humanity become one. It's almost scandalously blasphemous and yet it's true because Jesus is for you. Jesus does not come to lay obligations upon us. He comes to give us abundance. And he comes to give us the presence of God, the thing we most desperately need and crave. So I wanna ask you, will you open your eyes afresh to the beauty of Jesus and enjoy what you already have? 
Let that change your life. If you've listened to more than sort of three sermons of mine, I will always quote this C.S. Lewis quote. And I, I unashamedly, all right, let me give it to you. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Stop being too easily pleased. Come and drink deeply from the abundance and the presence of Jesus. Let me pray. Father Almighty, we are sorry and we confess that so often we, we forget how wonderful you are and how much you have done for us. Jesus, you are the king of glory and of grace. It's entirely within your right to do anything that you please. And what you pleased was to come amongst us and to give us everything that we needed. Lord, would you just expand our vision and enliven our hearts with the joy that only you can give. Would you help us to not only know, but, but really know and experience the truths that everything we have in Christ. And we pray all of this in his beautiful name. Amen.